I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 21. 18:21. The the passage that we looked at last week, if you were here with us last week, it was on church discipline. And it's sort of the, I think we said, the go-to passage when it comes to the actual practice of discipline within the church because it gives a process. The Lord Jesus walks us through, uh, do this. You know, so it's a very important passage. Uh, but this challenging topic of church discipline that we talked about last week is not only important in terms of its main purpose that we we had talked about, which is for the reclaiming of brothers and and sisters who have have gone astray and to, to call them back into the fold and back to the Lord, back to His church. So it's not only important for that, but it's it's also important if you think about it, because when, when we face the kinds of matters that come up when it, when it comes to uh, church discipline, matters that involve conflict, that matters that involve our own sin, often the sin of others, maybe directed against us, but in all of these things, it can lead to the gospel. It can lead to gospel truths. It can lead to an evaluation of our own hearts and where we are before the Lord. Uh, the Lord does tend to, doesn't He? He uses these kinds of things, these difficult matters, uh, to draw us deeper in our relationship with Him and, and to remind us often of, of the gospel basics and of our own sinfulness, our own need, and then of how the Lord Jesus has provided for that, for, for that need. And, you know, that's what we find in today's passage. This is a passage that it takes place immediately in time. It appears after uh, the passage that we looked at last week on, on church discipline. You'll notice in verse 21 that we're beginning with that, that key word there at the beginning, then. Uh, and so we take it that, that this happened shortly after and, and it came out of that teaching from Jesus uh, on church discipline. Uh, so we find here Peter, right at the very beginning, asking Jesus... A question, and it's a question that that becomes evident as we go through, that reveals something about Peter's heart that needs to be corrected. It's not the only place where we see that Peter's heart needs correction, is it? Uh, And and so this is one of those places, and uh, Jesus recognizes that, of course, and and he tells Peter, in essence, uh, that he, he has a wrong perspective. He's got a wrong approach to living in the kingdom of, of God. And, uh, and so he, he, he provides him with that correction. And that, that's something that we should take to heart because you and I, if, if we're honest with ourselves, that we're not unlike Peter in this, that we constantly need a reminder. We, we know something about Peter and where his relationship is with the Lord. Yet this is Peter that's... that's uh, facing this, and so we must say for ourselves that we need the same uh, reminder. Now here it seems that Peter, in asking his question of Jesus, that I'll read in just a moment, that, that he's concerned to see how Jesus' teaching on church discipline 
applies to him. Now remember, or you may remember, uh, back at the beginning of that teaching, back in verse 15 it began, if your brother sins against you. And now Peter's going to bring that back up. Uh, because Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, here is what you are to do. And, and so Peter wants to know this area of forgiveness. Uh, what does that mean? What does that require of me? What exactly does that require of me? And again, that reveals something about Peter's heart. Now, let me read the passage. Uh, it begins in verse 21 of chapter 18, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. And he said, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Say a word of prayer. Father, we recognize as we read this passage, we should recognize that it deals with difficult matters for us, matters of relationships with, with others, matters in which uh, we can be drawn astray by our own sinfulness, and the same can happen with others. And there, there are challenges that are, that are there, yet, Lord, you provide here what we need, what we need to see, what we need to know, what we need to to have in our hearts at all times. And so we, we pray, Lord, that you will help us, give us that vision that we need, help us to take this, to apply it to our own hearts, and, and therefore uh, to live out of it according to your design. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, sometimes you have those conversations with people that may seem 
kind of unimportant at the time or uh, insignificant, but later, maybe sometime later, maybe years later, they come back to you and you, you recall it and it informs you and it helps you uh, to know about something. Uh, that was true of me on a particular occasion about 20 years ago. It was a, a particular conversation I had with a, a, a man, a friend, uh, and I had just been a, a Christian in the church for a few years at that point. And it was late at night. Uh, it was on a Friday night, I remember, and it was the first night uh, of a three-day men's retreat. We were up on the top of a, a mountain. I had driven up there in individual uh, cars, and uh, I was having this conversation with this man out in the parking lot, and it was, it was dark out there, um, and the man uh, was somebody we knew well. I'd been in a small group with him. His name, uh, I'll, I'll call him Jim, but he was just about to get into his car and go down from the mountain because he, was, he could only commit uh, with his busy schedule, could only commit to the, the first evening of the retreat. And we had just come out of this meeting uh, in which we had been together, if you know about a mountaintop retreat, there, uh, you know, there's this sense of being up on top of the mountain, sharing with one another, sharing in God's Word. And so we were doing that. We were actually discussing in some manner the gospel and how it changes the heart, the, the, the change that takes place, the transformed life that comes out of it when Jesus takes root in the heart of a believer. And, and uh, this friend of mine, uh, just before he hopped into his car, he, he said to me, you know what, I've, I've given my life to, to, to Jesus three times before, and yet I've never, I've never experienced this new life, this transformation. And he was kind of saying it out of frustration. He was, saying, he was asking me, in essence, what do I need to do in order to experience this radical trans, uh, transformation, this new life? You know, I've, I've done these things that I've been told to do, and I've had the right feelings, I think, at the time. Uh, and maybe in his, uh, in his case, I can't remember, maybe had prayed a certain prayer or gone forward in a service, something. But whatever it was, he, he was kind of saying, is that it? You know, I've done these things. What else? Give me the next step. You know, the one thing I can't recall out of our conversation was what I then shared with him, this, this brilliant uh, wonderful direction to him. Uh, so uh, it, it, that, that didn't happen. I'm not sure exactly what I shared. But I tell you, if I had had my Bible with me and I had known my Bible well enough, I think that it would have been very profitable for me to have shared what we just read, to have shared this parable of Jesus with him. Now, you might ask why. Because my friend wasn't asking. He wasn't concerned that somebody had sinned against him and he was struggling with how to, how to forgive them or, or uh, how often. Uh, and yet, there is a similarity there between the questions that he was asking me and that which we hear from Peter in his question to Jesus right at the beginning of this account. Because both of those questions seem to come from the same realm of uh, background reasoning and, and, and assumptions. Uh, and uh, Jesus went on with Peter to say, let me show you your error here. And, and I think the same could have done, been done with my friend uh, Jim. Because both of these 
needed adjustments in their thinking. So this parable would have been helpful to him. The reason I say that is because both Jim and Peter, the disciple, seem to assume that whether it's coming into this new life, that's what Jim was struggling with, or living out that new life, and that's what Peter is dealing with, that it involves some sort of formula, that there's something that can be quantified, there's some measurable quantity, or there are these steps that you need to follow, and you need to to follow them a certain number of times, and if you do that, then you'll live a life that's good. You'll live a life that's pleasing to God. You'll live a life in which you measure up to His requirements. And you know, I think the same thing can be true of us, can it, that we, we begin to want to know those kinds of things. Let me know. You know, tell me, Lord, or tell me, Pastor, uh, what are the steps that I need to take? What's required of me? And it could be, you know, how much of my income do I need to give? And is it before taxes or after taxes? Uh, and and I, just a side note here, have you ever noticed that when it comes to talking about money and about giving, that, uh, and we see this a lot, a lot in the New Testament, but we never see in the New Testament, we never see an amount given, we never see a percentage that's given. Now, we do often look to the Old Testament, we, that 10% uh, figure that's there, and, and, and we call upon that. But in the New Testament, you know, it, it's not given with all the, the mentions of, of money and of giving, it's conspicuously absent. Have you ever wondered why that is? I think it has something to do with what we're dealing with here. Another topic, uh, the Lord's Day. About the do's and the don'ts. Do you ever get focused on the do's and the don'ts for the Lord's Day so that, uh, so that that really uh, maps out what your day is going to be like and you determine everything based upon that? And I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't think about do's, do this, don't do this. When it comes to the Lord's Day, it's clear that we should. But when that becomes uh, the, the trump that guides our day. Uh, that's this type of thing. What about with a, a daily devotion? Have you ever been tempted to ask somebody else, right, you know, what do you do on a daily basis? How much time do you, do you spend you know, reading the Bible or reading a certain devotion, 30 minutes? Um, or even if you haven't been tempted to ask that, maybe you, you kind of have this, this set routine and 30 minutes, and, and if you go for an hour, you know you're covered. You know you're good. Uh, for the day, uh, you know, it, there are so many other areas uh, in which this can take place. It can happen with Bible studies and the number you're engaged in. It can happen with screen time uh, on the screens that we have or, or with sacrificing time and money to help others who have needs and you begin mapping out quantities there. Uh, are we driven by this desire inside to quantify these things? You know, just tell me, what do I need to do? Give me the steps. Is that something that you can relate to at all? Well, that, that was my friend Jim. Uh, I've already done these things. What else can I do? What's missing? Well, Jim was missing the big picture. And in a very real sense, that's Peter as well. And 
And again, this is Peter the Apostle. He knows better. Uh, and therefore, when it comes to you and me, we know that some of the things that we have here, we need to be reminded of as well. Uh, so that we have that, that right picture, that big picture, so that we see ourselves and we see the Lord in a right way and we live our lives out of that uh, in a right way. Now, Peter, right here at the beginning, uh, what, what's, what's his question that he has for Jesus? Uh, he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? You know, I think in that moment, Peter thought that he was going to be commended by Jesus. Uh, I, I read somewhere that the Jews had down that three times, that that's what you want to make sure that you forgive others, but beyond that, you're, you're, you're not beholden to that. So Peter was probably thinking, well, I'm good. And then look at what Jesus answered. He says, I, I tell you, not seven times, but 77. And some versions say 70 times seven and we've got to understand there that the Lord Jesus is not talking about a particular number. He's not saying 490 times. And if you hit that 491st time, then you're on your own. You can do whatever you want. Uh, no, he's not saying that here. What he's doing is he's removing any sort of limitation. He's saying this is without boundary. And he's going to go ahead and, and say why it's without boundary. And so his message to Peter here is that as those who have been forgiven much, 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 we must be those who forgive much. And again, Jesus is going to drive that point home with a parable. But a, a couple of points as we look at this parable that we can, we can see important points uh, that, that he's saying we need to understand. Peter, you need to understand this. Uh, in order to have that right perspective, that big perspective, one of those is uh, we must be able to recognize the extent of our indebtedness. Uh, another one, we, we must be able to recognize the extent of His mercy. And then the third one, very simple in a, in a sense, we must respond out of these. And so the first step there, we, we must recognize the extent of our indebtedness. Now, this is just one of those basic gospel truths that needs to be a part of our thinking, of our mind, as we go about our, our days, day after day. It must, uh, we, and no matter what we're involved in, we must have this in the forefront of our minds. It's not just something that was there in the past that we need to have known, but it's something that's very present that we need to know today. And you know the natural man, the natural heart rails against this. But when we're open to the Lord, when we're listening to Him, when we're hearing from His Word, when the Holy Spirit is, is teaching us, opening our hearts, this reminder comes again and again and again that our indebtedness is great. Let me just say up front about this parable. It's, it's not one of those parables that's difficult to understand. But there is a key piece of information that you might not pick up on because we're not a part of the culture here. So let me point that out. Uh, we've got the first servant that the king brought in to settle his account. And that servant owed the king, it says, 10,000 talents. 
Of course, the question is, how much is that? We don't know the culture, so we, we can't just hear that and, and automatically know. Well, yeah, that's, uh, I can understand that. You know, the ESV has a note that's given that says, a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years of wages for a laborer. So you do the math. 20 years of labor for one talent, 10,000 talents, what does it equal? If my math is correct, it's 200,000 years of labor. That's a lot. And then if we take that number and we put a dollar amount on it, uh, in today's dollars, we assume about $15 uh, uh, per hour, which this is a labor we're talking about here, it comes out to $6 billion. That's the amount that this servant owed to the king. Now, if you didn't know that before, does that kind of change the picture of this parable that Jesus is, is, is giving? And Peter would have known immediately uh, what he was saying here. And of course, the question is, how could the servant ever earn enough to pay back his debt? Six billion dollars. And we see here he's not Bill Gates. This is a common laborer. And so the answer is obvious, right? He can't. There's no way. The debt is astronomical. It's beyond the realm of possibility that he could ever pay it back. And so verse 25, just very simply and just straightforwardly states uh, the consequences. And since he could not pay, it's almost like the understatement of the year, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made for the, this to go toward paying off the debt. You know, the point that Jesus is making here is obvious. You are the servant. God is the king. The debt is that debt that you owe to God because of your sin. Uh, and it is that great. That's how great the debt is. There's nothing that you could ever do. There's nothing that would ever be enough to pay off that debt. Why? We're not given the why in the parable. We are given it in God's Word again and again, it's because of who God is. You know, we, we proclaimed it earlier in our call to worship. You can look at your bulletin on the front page there. I'm just going to read a few of the words here uh, out of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, Holy is He. And then again, a little bit further down. Holy is He. That God is holy. That means He's set apart. He, he's different than everything else. And to sin against the Holy One is always to incur this great debt. This is not an exaggeration that's here. In fact, the debt is greater than what we see in this parable. Our debt before the Lord is great. You know, understanding that word holy is perhaps one of the most difficult challenges we have. The, the passage I most often go to is found in Leviticus 10. Uh, it, it has in there, you may remember this, Nadab and Abihu. They were sons of Aaron. They had become uh, priests. They were of that lineage. Uh, and so they had been given by God instructions. Uh, and so they were serving as priests. But what did they do? It says they offered before the Lord an unauthorized fire. We don't know exactly what they did. 
But they disobeyed. And what happened? Fire came out of heaven and struck them dead on the spot. And it was given to be a picture of who God is and who we are in our sin and what we deserve. That is the holiness of God. That's what we deserve. That is the debt that we owe. You know, in the, uh, in the hymn that we're, we're going to sing in a, in a few minutes, uh, God be merciful to me, it comes out of Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to sing these words out of the second stanza. Uh, my transgressions I confess, uh, grief and guilt my soul oppress. I have sinned against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. I confess thy judgment just speechless I thy mercy trust. And just a little bit later we're going to, we're going to sing uh, out of uh, the third stanza I am evil born in sin. What would the world do with words like that? What does much of the church do with words like that? It rejects them. It says no. This is not talking about me. Uh, that's, that's not who I am. The world abhors that kind of language and the meaning behind it. Yet this is exactly what Jesus is reminding Peter that is true of him and that he needs to know, he needs to have in the forefront of his mind. That's why he's making, part of the reason he's making this error. He's saying, Peter, your sin is so great that your debt to the Lord, to the Holy One, is beyond your ability to ever begin to repay. There's nothing that you can do. Now, just as a, again, as a side note, Peter knows this. <laughs> uh, we can turn to Luke chapter 5. Don't have to turn there now, but this is early on in Jesus' ministry. Peter had been fishing all night uh, with others. And they caught no fish. And then Jesus is there in the boat and he performs this miracle in which he says, cast the, the, the net in, and, and they receive this catch of fish that, that, that causes Peter to realize who he is in the presence of. He knows at that point that this is, this is the Lord. And so he cries out to Jesus. He falls to his knees first, and then he cries out to Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, Peter knew where he stood in his sin before holy God. And you and I need to, to know that for ourselves. And at a minimum, we need to see that this is Peter. And therefore, of course, we need this reminder as well. Now, maybe you know this. Maybe you're like Peter and, and you've already come to know the reality of, of your own sinfulness before holy God. Or maybe you're like my friend Jim, and you've never really internalized this before. You've never come to really know it. But either way, the extent of the debt that you have incurred before a holy God is too great for you to ever think that you can do anything about. And the only thing that you can do, the only thing, is to cast yourself wholly and completely upon the mercies of God. And that's where the second point comes in in the, the parable. And that's that we must recognize the extent of His mercy toward us. Now again, uh, Jesus is giving here one of these basic gospel 
truths, basic, uh, that we need to, to recognize. And he's saying, don't forget that the mercy that you, you've been shown in Christ is greater than your sin. And I'll uh, just note once again uh, that if you look at verse 25 in uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 25, uh, again, where we read that since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made, that uh, the servant uh, here, th- this is just something that, that happens. It's not the king being cruel. It's not the king being heartless. This is simply the consequences for his inability to pay the debt. We actually find this in Israel's uh, civil law code, even though there are protections around it and the, the, the year of the Sabbath uh, comes into play to uh, provide uh, some sense of compassion. Uh, yet this is what happened. But notice the reaction of the servant in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him. And he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And we got to think at that point that does the servant really know what he was saying? I will pay you everything. But he was, he was crying out for mercy. And then there's something that happens here that is, is shocking. I, I, I think that if we are really able to understand um, what this is saying, how shocking it is, that our reaction might be, well... This is just a story. It's just a parable. Jesus is not describing something that's real because that could never happen. That would never happen. This is the stuff of fairy tales. Because look at what happens in verse 27. And it amazes me how we just kind of read this and skip over it. But it says, And out of pity for him, compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the, the debt. Now, what is it there that makes it so shocking? Do you remember the extent of the debt, how great the debt was? 30, what did I say? I'm sorry, 200,000 labor years to pay this debt. Six billion dollars, the equivalent. Who would ever, if they had the ability, forgive a debt like that? And simply based upon the servant's pleas for mercy. But this is not just a fairy tale. Uh, Jesus is telling to Peter, he's he's relaying something to Peter that is a reality about Peter. He's saying, there's something askew in your perspective. This is reality for you. And it's reality for you and for me and for every other person out there in the world, that the debt that we owe is great. Yet the mercy of God that He freely offers is greater. It's there to meet and to provide for and to pay for that debt. How? In the Lord Jesus. In that which Jesus has done for us. That He, the Son of God, went to the cross on our behalf. Not only that, He first came and lived among us uh, and then taking on a, a criminal's death upon Himself. He died for us uh, 
Uh, and it's those two together, isn't it? It's the debt and the greatness of the debt, and then the mercy that is offered through the gospel. And both of those together that speak of this radical forgiveness that is ours in Christ that leads to the wonder and to the beauty and, and to the understanding that's beyond our ability really to conceive it because it erases a debt that's far greater than anything that we could ever begin to take on ourselves. Now this is, this is the basis for all those great passages in, in the Bible, Old Testament and New, that speak about the mercy of God. And that it's, that it's always with view of the great debt that we owe, that the mercy itself becomes exalted so highly. You know, in First Peter chapter 1, one of my, my favorite passages, uh, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in His great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that's kept in heaven for you, that's protected for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of that salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All of this, this is the mercy of God, but it has in view that great debt that we each have that the Lord cancels because of His mercy when we turn to Him, when we cry out to the Lord Jesus, knowing that great debt. What was the answer from my friend Jim? It was exactly that. It was recognize your great debt and recognize the Lord Jesus for who He is and turn and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. And He has all of these things for you. And that, those words that we so easily skip over here, out of His pity, out of His, his, his uh, mercy, the Master of that servant released Him and forgave that debt. The, the key is these two realities go hand in hand. Our great indebtedness and God's great mercy. And Jesus said that the result of a life lived out of those two realities will be, and you can understand this, it makes sense, it will be a life lived wholly dedicated unto God. And so he says it's out of that that we must respond to others. That there is a response that's assumed here that anyone that experiences this, anyone that knows this great mercy and knows his great debt is going to respond out of this uh, wholeheartedly and without limit. And this is where the second servant comes in in the parable. The first servant was given mercy. He was forgiven. He was released. Yet it says, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 100 denarii, that, that's equivalent to about 100, each denarii was about a, a day's labor. So 100 denarii, that's not insignificant. 100 days worth of labor, maybe a half year's wages. Not insignificant. But here, what are we to do? Automatically, we compare it, right? To the, to the great debt of the one servant, now he's, he, he, he is faced with a servant that owes him this much. Now, uh, listen to the reaction that he had. 
Jesus said that seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And that's when the, the second servant fell to his knees and he pleaded with him, notice in the same words that the first servant had used, and he said, have patience with me and I will pay you. He was asking for the exact same thing that had been granted to him. You know, this is uh, intended to shock us when we see the next line that says, uh, he refused. Just that, those two words, he refused. And, and the great contrast with what we saw previously from the, the king, that he had pity on him, he released him, he forgave the debt. But here, he refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt that he owed. You know, this is intended to be shocking to us because we ask, how could, how could this servant, having experienced what he experienced, having, you know, knowing how great the debt was that he owed, and having that forgiven on the basis of his pleas for mercy, how could he now go and treat this servant in this way? and fail to forgive so small an amount. It should drive us to be incensed toward this man so that our attitude should be, this man just needs to be dealt with. Uh, his heart is hardened. He doesn't really understand what he received. And so what we read a little further is that the king finds out about this uh, from uh, the fellow servants. And then... His master, the king, summons this servant. He says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so he delivers him over to the jailers to be dealt with. Now, of course, the point of this is not that God's forgiveness, when it's granted to a person, will be revoked. If that person fails to forgive others, that's not what he's saying here. That's clear in Scripture. But the point here is also clear that the great depth of our indebtedness to God, given that, and given His great mercy toward us, which is that our, our sin we can know is atoned for by the Lord Jesus, and that that, that same forgiveness that we see represented here has been paid in full in our behalf by the Lord Jesus. And so we have received this. And so the Lord Jesus is saying, this is a cause to examine your heart, Peter. Or this is a, a, a cause to, to, to examine your heart and you fill in the blank with your own name. Uh, because you have been granted, if you if you trusted in the Lord, if you've come to Him, if you've turned from your sins, and you said, you are mine and I am yours, then you have taken this upon yourself and you have received this great forgiveness. Uh, and if you continue in a place in which you're not able to forgive others, you're not able to love others, you're, 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 your service to Him is limited and, you, and you're constantly asking this question, well, Okay, how much do I need to go? What, what, what 
does my walk before you, what must it consist of? And it's the minimum that you're, you're living out of. Then you've got to ask that question. Does my heart really show one that's been transformed by the love of Jesus uh, in this way? And what Jesus is seeking out of Peter and what he's seeking from you and me is to recognize again and again and again what has been done for us, who we are apart from God. And therefore, you're saying live out of this, just as we sang earlier, with great rejoicing of heart. Now, there is a, a passage that is intended uh, to show us this so clearly. It's out of Romans chapter 12, Romans 1 through 11, showing uh, all the elements of, of salvation from, from the very beginning, that great indebtedness that is so clear in the first a uh, couple of chapters, the first three chapters of Romans, but then uh, the, the Lord's provision that He justifies those who turn to Him and repent, uh, that he, he forgives their sin and He brings them in, He adopts them uh, into His family. Uh, and we see the whole of salvation there. And you get to Romans 12 and it's like this, this fulcrum upon which it stands. And, and Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, on the basis of all of this, by the mercies of God, by that which you've been shown, to now present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he says, this is the new life. It's lived out of that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, and that's what the Lord is doing with Peter here, by testing you may discern what is the will of, of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Not in the micro, uh, not in each step, this is exactly what I need to follow, but so that you'll live a life which is given over to the Lord and which is pleasing to the Lord and which you have joy that undergirds it and a love for the Lord. You know, this whole uh, passage is a call back to the gospel and it's a call back to ask ourselves, have we been received or have we received these things from the Lord Jesus? And if we have, then do we live out our lives in relationship with Him in a, in a way in which we don't place limits on our love for others, on the way that we walk in this world? Let me close uh, with this out of 1 John chapter 4. This is our assurance of pardon. Uh, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that is the good news for us and the way that we are to live our lives. Please join me in, in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. Uh, we thank You for the understanding that You give us of, of who we are, of our condition, uh, that which we so desperately have tried to set aside, to ignore the whole world, tries to, to set aside our, our true condition, and yet you, you lay it out. It's plain before us. But You do it for our good. 
that we might truly see the mercies of God in Christ and that we might therefore live out of those mercies. Lord, help us day after day as we live our lives to see that, to know it, to know it uh, in the forefront of our minds, in the decisions that we make, in the ways that we raise our family, in the ways that we interact with one another, even when things become very, very difficult. Help us to see how you've loved us the extent to which you've loved us and help us to live out of that, we pray. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.